They didn't realize we were seeds. They didn't realize you were seeds. They open doors so others can walk through them. Your legacy is every life you have ever touched. I'm Stella Sagliari, and this is Salt the Podcast. Welcome to Salt the Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. My guest today is Karen Dunaway, a 26-year-old Honduran researcher and activist who was born with HIV and comes from a human rights defender's household. Since the age of nine, Karen has been an activist for the rights of children, adolescents, and young women to having a healthy childhood and youth free of stigma and discrimination, and that their rights are integrated into public policies. In 2006, when she was eight, she helped launch the first edition of Javesitas magazine, the only magazine in Honduras created by and for children and adolescents living with HIV. Kera now works for Javes, an organization that uses strategic communication for HIV prevention and advocacy. She's a firm believer in comprehensive and secular sex education. She says, the deficiencies in the education system mean that adolescent girls and young women don't recognize their reproductive health as a human right. This prevents them from accessing basic health services and the means to prevent unwanted pregnancies and protect themselves from sexually transmitted infections, including HIV. Karen is also a member of ICW Latina, the international community of women with HIV, She's part of the organization since 2006 and was part of the founding team of the ICW Youth Area. Karen also works as a gender equality officer, representing ICW Global at the People Living with HIV Stigma Index 2.0 International Partnership and is part of the communications team of the Global Fund's Latin American Caribbean Platform. She studied political science at the University of Buenos Aires with a core focus that advocacy needs strong case evidence and research. Her advocacy focuses for a large part on women. Karen says, throughout my life, I have witnessed injustices that affect women's sexuality and our right to choose. They all revolve around women's lack of autonomy and enabling circumstances to make decisions about our bodies and our sexuality. Despite the fact that young women represent about 41% of those living with HIV in Latin America, their plight and the barriers they face are not visible. Our ability to participate in designing, implementing, and monitoring public policies and programs is limited because we are not recognized as a key population and our specific needs are not a priority for the government. In this episode, we speak about Karen's journey her advocacy, the importance of incorporating people living with HIV into the research process, policy creation, and a holistic approach toward, towards the HIV cure. We also speak about feminism, Karen's book recommendation, and her mama. It is an honor to have Karen on Salt, and I'm grateful to her for speaking with us and sharing her story and work. Welcome, Karen. I'm so happy that you're here with us today, and I want to thank you for uh, speaking on SALT. 
Thank you, Stella. And hi, everyone. Uh, thank you for inviting me to the SALT podcast. It's so great being here and to talk about HIV, SRHR, women living with HIV as well, and even about research. It will be a great hour. Yes, thank you so much. Yes, Karen, tell us, who are you? Share something about yourself. Uh, well, this is going to be a little bit long. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, okay, okay. That's great to hear because it's going to be kind of long. <laughs> I am a Honduran young woman who was born with HIV. Uh, and since I was nine years old, I started um, a human rights activism. And it was influenced by my parents because they are human rights defenders as well. Uh, starting in 2005, I think, I began to have a voice um, and talk about the rights of children, adolescents, and young women for them to achieve the goal of having an integral and healthy childhood, adolescents and youth, so we can all be free of a stigma discrimination and that our rights are integrated into public policies. And this started uh, with being the editor of a children's magazine called Javesitas that in, in English the literal translation it's Little Kids and working on Javes Foundation that the literal translation is Key Foundations and that's why the children's magazine is called Little Kids or Tiny Kids um, and Javes Foundation is a Honduran organization founded by my parents in 1999 and it was one of the first in the countries uh because HIV was still something new in the 90s, uh, even though it had existed since the 80s, but even mid-90s in Honduras, HIV was a kind of new topic and not everyone knows about it or knew about it at the time. And my parents got diagnosed in 95 after I was born. And when they were looking for information about HIV and, and living HIV and not only the, the medical aspects of it, there was nothing they could find. Uh, so they, along with other now great activists in the country, began to make the first networks of people with HIV in Honduras. Uh, besides that, I am, all, I am also a member of the International Community of Women Living with HIV. Uh, its acronym is ICW. Uh, currently, I am working as the gender equity officer for the People Living with HIV Stigma Index, representing ICW in the International Partnership. My journey with ICW started as well very, very young. Uh, when I was 12, no, eight, I don't remember, but it was like 26, 2006. And it has expanded 10 years later, and I was part of the founding team of the ICW Latina Youth Area. And uh, in 2020, I was the lead on a project we presented for the IASU Champion Program. It, it was a big long. <laughs> no, it wasn't long. Of course, there is a lot of information, and we will go into more details with the upcoming questions because, yeah, th th there's a lot. Th there's a lot, and I'm sure many people have many questions and don't know many yeah. things. So I find our conversation extremely important today. Yes. As you already said, so we will start now taking some of the things you mentioned and unravel them further. Um, you come from an activist household. 
and you have been fighting the stigma and discrimination that young people and especially women living with HIV face since you were eight. And as many of us know in the 80s and the 90s, I think this is something that people do know um, what was happening in the US at that time, how people with HIV AIDS were treated, um, how they were quickly dying because there was no medication available. And uh, also politically speaking, how they were insulted and discriminated against. I think this is something that people know, the, probably the image of things happening in the US. But I don't think many people know what was going on in Honduras, what was going on in Latin America. You already mentioned it a little bit. And I guess a lot of people definitely don't know how it is to be born with HIV AIDS, right? So yeah, share with us a little bit about your journey. Yeah, like I said, my history in activism and advocacy began at a very young age. When I was eight years old, I started talking openly about my diagnosis at my parents' foundation. Uh, actually, we were the first and still the only family to talk about living with HIV in Honduras. There's a lot of activists that openly uh, talked about diagnosis now, but uh, we were the first family that said we are, we are all living with HIV. And you can still live with HIV uh, because at the time there was still this uh, stigma and and this close-minded thinking that HIV was a was like equals that when it's actually not at all. Uh, you can still have a full and successful life, a quite a live life with the treatment right now. And um, that's why I started my activism journey since I was a kid. Yeah, I I experienced a stigma since kindergarten and sadly I was not the only one I knew a lot of kids too who suffer stigma kids who are born with HIV and and my parents mostly uh, my dad asked me if I was okay to be open about my diagnosis because having this idea uh, to share the experience of how a girl with HIV perceive HIV and grow with HIV how could impact many children and young people in a positive way. So that's why we started this children magazine, uh, Tiny Kids, uh, because there we explained not only for kids who were HIV positive, but also for those who are not, to explain HIV, um, human rights, um, the most basic information about sexuality even, in a friendly way for kids to understand that a stimulation, it's a bad thing. Like the most simplistic thing on a, a key magazines. So it can have an impact when they grow up. Uh, the, the children's magazine, it was so successful that I think if I am not mistaken, the largest printing we had was about 10,000 copies, if not much. And it was uh, distributed not only in Honduras, but in some countries around Central America as well. And these, uh, and I, I have almost 19 years now in activism and have seen a little bit of everything from discrimination at school, of, of my experiences, other experiences by my classmates, even some parents of my classmates <laughs> were saying some some nasty stuff about HIV when I was a kid and even teachers and and I didn't stop when I was a kid I I still work in activism and talking now about entering adolescence and and teenage years uh being in love uh 
going to puberty as a young woman living with HIV. And even in, it has been challenging, yeah, but it has been exciting. Uh, and also talking about my experience, moving to a new country, starting university, finding how my classmates in university find out that I was an actress. It has been a, a really long journey, but um, I have been very openly about it that HIV is not a limitation at all. You can still go to live somewhere else. I have a relationship with a with my boyfriend from 10 years now, and he's not HIV positive. So you can still have a relationship and you can still go to college. I studied political science at the University of Buenos Aires. Thank you so much, Karen. <laughs> and Karen, of course, this is inextricably linked to the topic. And there's still a lot of work to do on, on this. And what I'm referring to is the significance of comprehensive and secular sex education and the importance of strategic, strategic communication for HIV prevention and advocacy. To put it maybe in simpler words or in other words, sexual and reproductive health as a human right globally. But yeah, I say especially in your location because you are based there. So I want to make it also a little bit more focused on, on your own location. But of course, also globally, sexual and reproductive health uh, is a human right. And there is a lot to do when it comes to sex education, so on and so forth. So tell us more about it. When it comes to sexual and reproductive health, it has long been polarized by pregnancy and prevention of pregnancy. And all the taboos that it still englobes the sex education and sex in women, like all the information that we have, Oh, and when we talk about SRHR in young women or in women in general, it's mostly taught by medical approaches with a focus on prevention of vertical transmission or leaving a large bias when it comes to girls who are born with HIV. Because I told you, there are still some, pe some people that know, know that you can still born with HIV. And even those who acquired HIV through child marriage and, and sexual abuse, um, we still don't talk about the situation of, of young women transitioning to adult services or young women with HIV who surrender their puberty, their periods, their, they see blood and, and, and all they, ha they have heard is that blood in HIV is equals bad when it's nothing like that. Or, or we are not, and we should start to, to talk about aging with HIV and, and women with HIV entering menopause that that that's a reality that has not been investigated a lot or talked a lot women of all ages who choose to or not to have children as as well as the lack of attention to women outside the reproductive years are not being investigated or focused on srh SR and HR section and reproductive human and rights and sex education is not only about how to access condoms or how to use the condoms correctly. It's not only about explaining the ways how HIV is transmitted, and it's certainly not about giving a medication every month and saying that it's fine. It's more of having an integral quality of life for women living with HIV that they know 
how they are going to transition the purity, how they are going to access services, how they are going to be treated, that they know that they can have a pleasure and in, in a, 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 a comprehensive sexual life because many women there still have this internal stigma that they will not have a, a relationship, they will not be mothers, they can get pregnant and they can they can do they can even there are studies that the, the woman can even breastfeed in their children without uh, any challenges of transmission to hiv and for young women to to talk about sex ed hiv sometimes when they say oh yes we did a research on women but it's just numbers which they evidence uh, the situation but they don't put a face on those numbers each number is a woman living on HIV who has experienced multiple things and realities. And one of those young women from Chile um, shared to us her experience on sex ed. And I want to quote her that, that she said, I did not receive sex education in school and I would have liked to know more about the disease that I have since I find out in a bad way when my parents died. It has affected me too much because sometimes I limit myself in doing things like having a partner and those things and I want to go back again saying sex education and sexual human rights is not only having access to condoms and to medication it's about having the right information in all aspects of our lives yes taking a holistic approach right yes yes exactly a holistic approach uh Karen you wrote um, in 2018, uh, we women with HIV have walked a very hard road that has seen change for the better, but not enough. There are still children who are being discriminated against. There are children who do not have medication. There are children who are being abused and there are children who do not know they have rights. We have more work to do, but every day we become more united and every day we fight together to get where we want to be. When looking back to everything you, your mother, and all the other women you, you work with have achieved in those years, and at this statement that you wrote in 2018, what are your reflections? Okay, I'm going to say this again um, in, on the question before, that we have repeatedly stated that, that to have a comprehensive response to HIV, we must go beyond the biomedical dimensions and aspects, although they have been instrumental in terms of pharmaceutical advances. Um, it alone are not enough to solve the complex reality of women with HIV, because you said that this podcast is also intersectional. Yes. We have to have a, a intersectional dimensions on these approaches for women with HIV. And and this is an, the, and the interesting thing about this question is we want to reflect in this last four years is that I, I cannot ignore the huge changes and impacts that the pandemic has had on us, not only in a personal level, but also in economic, health, social, and even political spheres. One of the biggest challenges that we have at this very moment is that HIV care cannot, cannot be neglected because of the attention of COVID-19 and, and all and all and everything that activists has done this past 20 years around HIV. It was a great some some great work has been done by many members of people 
they were HIV during the pandemic. Uh, some of them, they give uh, home treatment services, uh, uh, some hotline prevention for mental health as well. And they even have um, a great strategy to ensure confidentiality in health centers. But this is the work of networks, not the health centers themselves, the health centers or even the government itself. The governments must not roll back the games already made in HIV, even in the pandemic. I stand firmly on what I've been repeating since, since 2018. And I don't know if you have the chance to, to read an article I I wrote about me not being in HIV treatment for three years. So I in 2018 I wrote about my experience of of not taking the HIV treatment for three years, mostly because I was tired of it, and then it became a political or advocacy position. And one last paragraph I think I wrote is that we still need to work on the cure. Having HIV treatment is not enough. HIV cure is a clinical, social, and political demand because it frees us from the possible advances of HIV. And, the, and at the same time, it frees us from a stigma, discrimination, and even criminalization associated with HIV because in some countries, they still criminalize you for having HIV or not disclose HIV to your sexual partner. So governments are in the obligation to, to invest and to find the cure and make available the cure worldwide. My last question to, to, to what we have been discussing right now, you said uh, we have to move beyond the medical approach. Obviously, you say the medical um, solutions that have been found so far are good, you're not saying we we don't care about the medical stuff. And of course, you're also saying we need to investigate further. There has to be further research to eventually find a cure so people don't have to live with constantly taking pills or not having access to pills and so on. But you also shared with me that there has to be a greater involvement of people living with HIV AIDS. And I would like you to share a little bit more on that. You, of course, have already shared a lot about the lack of gender equitable research, how women are being stigmatized, neglected. And then, of course, again, depending on your location, on your class, where you come from, you face more op oppressions. But I want you to elaborate also a little bit more um, on the importance of involving people who live with HIV AIDS into finding solutions, into the research, so on and so forth. You know, it is so important that um, UNAIDS and, and a lot of networks who work around HIV have a principle that we work around that is called the GIPA principle. The GIPA principle means greater, greater involvement of people living with HIV. And it's a principle that aims to realize the rights and responsibility of people living with HIV including their rights to participation in decision-making processes that affects the life of people in HIV. This also includes significant participation and research around HIV. In the article that I told you about, um, that we wrote with this amazing, amazing women about uh, SRHR and women with HIV, we touch on the basis of community-led research that is often described as, as great literature. It has been 
frustrated that our work, the work of research from community has not been recognized as this robust and valuable source of information by policymakers or programmers or academics. And it's more frustrating because it's coming from the communities itself, the ones who know what is happening and how things can change. In the, in the article uh, that I highly recommend everyone to read, uh, we talk about that, that there's there's a lot of evidence made on community, uh, a lot of uh, investigations and research made by networks of people in WHIV and even networks of women in WHIV. And yet, our voices and views and recommendations have not been heard and our own research priorities are being treated as not enough because it doesn't come from these highly academic aspects and we don't have like four PhDs, um, which, which often differ from those who conduct research on us rather than with us. Coming back to the 2020 uh, research that we did um, on the youth area, it is the first research around young women living HIV in Latin America. And we did it in four countries. It's two in Central America, that is Honduras and Nicaragua, and two in, our, in, in South America, Argentina and Chile. And we wrote the situational report on perspective of, of women living with HIV. And one key study, uh, one of the key findings was that there is no data on how many young women with HIV between the age of 15 to 29 have developed cervical cancer, or there's no data around how many young women have, have had access to, to HPV vaccine. HPV is the human, but I don't know how to say it. Papilloma virus. Yes, thanks. Or, or we don't know how many young women with HIV had access to pap smears or they even know that they can have access to pap smears. I think that is, that is a good moment to, yeah, to move to the next question because you are a feminist. Um, and before I ask you what feminism is for you, I also want to say that a big part of feminist research practice is participatory research, is taking a participatory approach, is taking an intersectional approach, not only focusing on the white men, but focusing on women, women of color, women in different regions. And when I hear you, especially what you shared with us now at the end, that there is no greater involvement of people living with HIV, that there are no studies on so many different subjects, that there's no real holistic approach it, yeah, it it's just reminds me again why I'm, why I'm a feminist, at least the way how I define feminism. Because feminist research practice is so much about um, minimizing also the relationship between the researcher and the researched and really involving them into the research, exactly what you just described. So, yeah, so I, I want to ask you, what is feminism for you? What does it mean to you? Because you say you are a feminist. For me, it is to be in the fight for equity and respect. And I am one of those who believe that there's not just one feminism, one, yes. one feminist moment. Yes. There's branch of feminism. And that's why it's called, that's why we need intersectional feminism and intersectional approaches. Even in research, we need to have intersectional gender 
data analysis investors as well. And one thing that, that we are working on in ICW or the Stigma Index is to have this gender lens on 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 in quantitative data and even qualitative studies. Not only saying how much women participated in the studies, but analyzing the reality of this woman and and also thinking women in key populations like female sex workers with, with HIV may yeah. experience different uh, uh, stigma. The pillars for feminism for me is education. And for education, we need to have information. And feminism is not about hating men or that women deserve more rights than men. Feminism is recognizing the struggles and the fights of our ancestors and the great history of our mothers and our grandmothers. We see every March, every 8th, March 8th, I see a lot of women on the street striking for women's sexual and human rights and equal pain not, not long ago. We see also our mothers and grandmothers who are in the streets striking for the right to vote. And before that, we saw our great-grandmothers were striking again on the streets for the right to work. And before them, we see our great-great-grandmothers who are fighting for the right of education to go to college. And, and I see on this woman's march powerful sense of freedom. And I remember some some of the, the signs that I see on on, on the marches that moves me, and one, one said that, one of the signs said, we are not historical, we are historical. And that's what I want to, to point out, the feminism, it's to acknowledge the history of our ancestors too. Yes, there, you said we are, not, been, yes. we are not hysterical, we are historical, you said. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Thank you. So now I'm moving more to some standard questions that, that most of my guests, uh, no, actually all of my guests get. Um, can you share a book with us that had an impact on you and that you wish everybody uh, would read? I have it here. I haven't read it. Oh, <laughs> Invisible Women. It's on my list. <laughs> it is so good. It is so good. I've had it for around two weeks. It's not one that I have read. Um but it's Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men by Caroline Criado Perez. Uh, well, the title says it all, but yes. it argues about the lack of big data women that is uh, equivalent to rendering half of the world's population invisible. On the very introduction uh, called the, the Default Man, I want to read another quote that says, The history of humanity the history of art, literature, and music, the history of evolution itself, all have been presented to us as objective facts, but the reality is these facts have been lying to us. They have all been distorted by the failure to account for half of the humanity, not least by every word, but world we use to convey our half truths. This failure has led to gaps in the data, a corruption in what we think we know about ourselves it has pulled, pulled the myth of male universality, and that is a fact. And, and, and this, and she also said it in the book, and this phrase that I love it, I still use it, male, unless otherwise indicated thinking, needs to stop because it puts us women slowly through the lens of 
a relationship with a man. We are no other than a sister or a wife or a mother. The uh, this data and those research they don't they don't see us as a autonomy person, autonomous person. They see us as an other or subtype of men, and that's why we still uh, talk about this need of gender analysis and and not to put aside women on research. Yes, it is yes. a great book. You should yes. read it. I actually uh, I gave a presentation a while ago, and my co-presenter presented on that book. And she shared some things that to me, I mean, obviously I'm a feminist. I've studied gender. I, 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 but I was shocked. Like she was sharing that even the air conditioning has been developed based on the man, based on their body temperature. That's why many, many times women are cold, the seat belt, like very simple things that there have all been designed um, based on the man. And I think another thing that is important, no, two things actually that you just mentioned by quoting the book. One is about this idea of objectivity, which has been um, sold to us, I think, especially in, in Western cultures, that there's this objective knowledge, the neutral knowledge, which is something that, okay, maybe certain things you can say, the temperature when water boils is an objective knowledge. But in general, there, there's no such thing as universal knowledge. And the other thing that you mentioned, the invisible woman, Um, I think we should just mention here because we have mentioned intersectionality many times in, in our conversation today. Maybe also not everybody knows what we mean with that. It's very important to not only do men versus women, but also within women to be uh, aware that there are trans women, there are women of color, there are poor women, there are lesbian women, there are bisexual indigenous women, there are women, well. indigenous women, there are women who live in war zones, and there are women who live in privileged countries, there are women who live under occupation. And of course, everybody's oppression is different. And that's why it's important that we, yeah, that we fight with each other and that we also, as you said earlier, bring the man on board because at the end it will benefit everybody. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's what feminism is also. Not just like, feminism is not just like woman, woman, woman. We are better than everyone else. It's also about the equality of everything, about the rights, about the data, about the research, about the workplace, about, about equal pay. Because sometimes I don't know the world, the word in English, but In Spanish, it's called machismo. Yes, from macho, machismo, yes. Macho, yes. Pa And we, can so use, people... we can use patriarchy just to make it simple patriarchy. for the listeners. But I know machismo, yes. Continue, continue, okay, yes. Great. And so many people put it, this feminism versus, versus machism as like this black and white. Yeah. And that's not that. Feminism is, is, is not about that. It's about equity. Yes, and, and it's also about other fights. It includes the fight against militarization, against occupation, against racism, against heteronormativity, against HIV-AIDS stigmatization. And this is another yes. reason why, why I, I love feminism, because it's so inclusive and it understands that all these different oppressions and, yeah, and, and struggles are interconnected and they're not just, okay, you're just fighting for this and I don't care about that. No. We are exactly. united in the struggle. Mm -hmm. So, yes. And Karen, I think we can talk forever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> who has been your soul? Who has inspired you? There has, there has been a lot of people who have inspired me through, through my life, through my short life. I'm only 26. <laughs> But 
the first person that I always said who inspires me is my mom. My mom, who had the courage to talk openly about her diagnosis with my dad um, and started this organization, one of the first, and knowing about all the things that could have that happened to her after the openly after she openly talked about her diagnosis, all that remorse of that gossiping because we live in a, a really small um, city. You can even say it's a town, but it, it, it is a city, but it's so small that everyone knows everyone. And all that gossiping and the rumors and, and talk behind her back. And even the struggle of having an HIV positive daughter or, or me living with HIV. And, and that fall falls on the woman because it's the woman who was pregnant. It's the woman who didn't care for herself or her child. And that's because... That's why that she has an, a daughter with living with HIV, and and I highly admire her for that. When my dad passed away ten years ago, he had she had to to continue working on the organization all by herself, and and even with with the grief and assimilating being being alone after my dad died, she continued working on activism and advocacy. And she had a strong, strong sense of gender equity around HIV. She taught me how to be a feminist. So yeah, I highly admire her. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing this. And to whom do you want to pass the salt? Who do you want to inspire? What do you have to say to them? That's also a heavy question. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I want to inspire young women that want to check me. Um, there's still uh, women who are growing up with HIV that they don't know if they can have a relationship, if they can be mothers, if they can have a college degree, a professional career, because there's so little information about growing up with HIV that It's really frustrating, but you can. You can have a pregnancy without any challenging of transmitting HIV to your child. And also, I want to inspire the woman in her early 20s that got diagnosed with HIV that it's not your fault. It's not your fault having HIV, and it, and it should condemn your entire life because it is not. You can still have a fully full life without HIV. Thank you, Karen. What is your question for me? And I hope these women are listening today or will today, maybe not, but they will listen to this podcast and you will reach them. But yes, what is your question for me? I just wanted to know like how, how this woman have affected not only your life, but others' life. Like what you said, uh, how it has inspired others. Just now one episode comes to my mind. Um, where a friend of mine listened to it and, and she messaged me and she says, oh my God, this has been so eye-opening and it influenced her in her own transformation journey, in her own journey towards change by listening to this conversation. Or I had another podcast um, uh, that where I spoke with a woman who lives in Palestine and then I had um, many people reaching out to me telling me, I learned so many things that I had no idea about because it's not in the mainstream media. 
Um, I had a person telling me I was considering going to Jordan to learn Arabic, but now I'm considering going to Palestine. So yeah, receiving these messages and seeing what different podcasts do is incredible. Or also meeting people. I've could I've like let's say become friends with people just through the podcast. And now um one of them, for instance, is is writing poems and she's publishing them on my platform. That's so great. um yeah, yeah. She's from Chile, by the way, but she lives in the US. So yeah, it's beautiful. These connections and and speaking up and and yeah, and learning from each other, you know, and uh, supporting each other. As I said before, I, I I believe this. United we stand. United we laugh. United we fight. And um, yeah, and seeing this, yeah, being realized through the podcast is beautiful. So yes, and I think we have to stop now. <laughs> at least, <laughs> yes, yes, at least the official well. recording. <laughs> so yes, um, yeah, we are now actually at at the end of the podcast, and I always honor a woman uh, or several women at the end of my podcast and today I want to honor your mother and I want to honor you and all the women who are living um, with HIV or with AIDS and, and are fighting this fight that you're fighting I truly admire your courage I truly admire your mother even though I don't know her but everything that I read about her and the things you've shared today I find it incredible and um, so I want to honor her and you and all the other amazing women that you mentioned today and also the ones of course that you didn't mention and I want to thank you for speaking with us for being so open and sharing your journey but also sharing so much knowledge with us educating us actually and of course I will upload um, your information on the topic on my website on my Instagram and yeah to my listeners please share this episode share all this valuable knowledge that Karen shared with us today and yes thank you Karen no, thank thank you, Stella, and and has been this great pleasure of speaking to you about research about gender, about young women with HIV. Um, some some of of these topics have not been talked about enough, and and I think um, this is a great platform to to do it. So thank you, and and saying hi, and thank you to your listeners to stay all, all the way through the end. Something that is loved is never lost. I'm Stella Sagliari and this is Salt the Podcast. Salt the Podcast. Salt the Podcast.